you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And we'll continue where we left off. We finished up the prologue the last time we were together. So for the last uh, nine months, we've been looking at this Gospel. We're moving today from the prologue with its summary to John the Apostle's narrative of the ministry of John the Baptist. By way of review, we learned several things already in that summary uh, about John the Baptist. Uh, we know that John was a man. The apostle tells us that John was sent from God. We know his name. It says, in his name was John, uh, which means Jehovah has graced. His mission his mission, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. The purpose of his mission was that all might believe through him. He was not, John tells us, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because... He is before me. John was a man sent from God, and the prologue tells us that the Word, Jesus, was from the beginning, creator, light, and the giver of life. Each time we have started, and I got this from a sister, Catherine Bowser. She taught the book of John, and she would repeat every time the purpose of the book. It's not for entertainment. It's not for education. But as it has a stated purpose, and again, we'll tell you what that is from John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'll add the word that you might believe that he's the son of God. He's both the Messiah, the anointed, the one sent by God, the one expected, and he is the very son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. What kind of life is he referring to? Uh, certainly it is spiritual life, life from Christ, life in Christ. But why? Why do we need this life? What is the purpose of this life? As Reformed people, we often, or not often, but we accept and we confess that the chief end of man is to, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What do I mean by the statement that dead men cannot glorify God or enjoy Him forever? This is what necessitates the giving of life, life that comes by believing in the Christ, believing in Jesus, the Son of God. So to glorify God, uh, to enjoy Him forever, we need spiritual life. So the purpose of the book and the purpose of our text this morning is that we might believe or we might continue to believe that Jesus is both Christ the one promised and anticipated by the Jews, and that, by, and that he is also the Son of God. 
This, of course, was not anticipated. This was not expected, and it was most difficult for them to accept and believe. Am I wrong in thinking that the primary reason for our coming together this morning, or at least our stated purpose for coming together this morning, is to worship the one true and triune God? As we have been reminded many times that it's not the preacher who calls us to worship, nor do we call each other to worship, but it is God himself who initiates and calls us to worship. The heavenly vision that we saw were those who had been foreknown, those who had been called, those who had been justified, those who will have been glorified and will be glorified. And we're thankful this morning that we can be included in that number. Uh, we in hymns, prayers, confessions of sin, and confessions of faith, and hearing from God through the preached word, point to God, the object of our worship. Later in John's gospel, we have this statement, and I say this morning we have gathered together to worship God. The importance of it is stated, you know the story where Jesus encounters the woman at the well in chapter 4. And I pulled out this section. He says, but Jesus tells the woman, but the hour is coming and now it is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Mark this, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He continues, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Let me pray again for us. Father, grant to us what you desire from us. We confess our dependence upon your Holy Spirit to reveal to us through your word something of your glory in the face of Jesus. May the Spirit open the eyes of our understanding that we might behold the Lamb of God. You and you alone know our individual needs. Grant to us repentance, encouragement, thanksgiving, and adoration. Join us now with the throngs who now surround your throne. Join us with all the hosts of heaven in recognizing and proclaiming your worth. Father, may your spirit of truth lead us in worship, <clears throat> in spirit and truth. Lord, grant us this morning clarity accuracy, brevity, and fidelity in the proclamation of your most holy word. We commend to you the physical needs of this congregation this morning, ourself included, that, Father, you would be merciful and gracious and lead us in worship. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I suggest to you that at the substance of a text before us is a presentation not of John, but of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Certainly, you might ask, how can I say this when John the Baptist seems to be uh, foremost, it's, it's a, uh, a section of scripture, a, a pericope that, that John is central. He's asked questions, uh, he gives answers, but I would suggest to you that the purpose of the book is to point to Jesus and the purpose of each chapter each story, each section is to point us to Christ. 
John the Baptist is constantly in this text pointing away from himself and pointing to Jesus. The whole gospel is about Jesus. And through this section of scripture, the apostle uses the witness, the apostle John uses the witness of John the Baptist to that end. Why? Why does John the Baptist, why is John, Bab, John the Baptist added to this story? Perhaps for us, 2,000 years later, we don't uh, attribute as much uh, necessity to it as John the Apostle did. But it is written because John is a link, a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people call him the last of the prophets. Not the prophet, as we'll see, but a prophet, a proclaimer. But we'll see what John has to say about himself. So what does John the Baptist add to the story? For us, not much, but for the original Jew Jewish audience, a lot. It's critical or it wouldn't have been in the text. This section of scripture begins with the verses and you can follow with me. And this, and mark this word, and this is the testimony or the witness of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Okay, this is his witness. This is his testimony. Who, what is he testifying to? Uh, and that's the subject matter that we'll be discussing this morning. These are not Jews, the ones who sent the Levites and the priests generically. For in verse 24, he adds kind of a parenthesis and he says, these are the Pharisees. Notice that the apostle includes that they were from Jerusalem. I don't want to overthink this, as they say, but I think it's important that they came from Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? What's the significance? Because Jerusalem, and more importantly, the temple, was at the heart of first century Judaism. And now a new figure comes on the scene. It is, and they ask the question, is he the one, the one we've been anticipating, or is he a threat to all the traditions and the teachings that we hold? So we continue, and it says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, are, who are you? How does he answer? Interestingly, or at least interesting to me, is the fact that they don't ask him directly. Uh, they don't ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the simply? But they simply ask, who are you? But apparently John took that to be their question, for he answered explicitly, I am not the Christ. When I say explicitly, I mean clearly and directly. There is no ambiguity here. He is, uh, and I could ask, and also say that he answered them emphatically or with emphasis, the emphasis of repetition. What does he say? He confessed. Uh, and he did not deny, but confessed. You, you see that three-pronged uh, approach he takes here by way of emphasis? I am not the Christ. I am not the anointed of God. I am not the promised one. Uh, <clears throat> I am not the Messiah. This weighty denial adds accent, I would suggest to you, to what he will confess positively concerning Jesus. 
Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And so they asked him, who then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? As we have read, John also denies that in this text that he is Elijah or the prophet, which were Jewish expectations, where we perhaps need explanation concerning an Elijah the prophet and the, the prophet, uh, where we need explanation, these hearers would have understood. It was second nature to them. They knew their scriptures. That's the reason so often in scripture a text will just be out of the blue quoted, no reference, uh, no point of reference, and sometimes it almost seems, how does this fit? But in the Jewish mind and from the speaker, uh, they would have understood because they had asked, are you Elijah or the prophet? Uh, Elijah or the prophet. They don't want a denial. I am not. I am not. I am not. What they want is an affirmation. They want a clear-cut answer to who John is. And what answer does he give them? Now, he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I don't know why he, so often a text is given and, and, and the prophet is not mentioned or, or whatever. But he, uh, he does make this uh, statement that it's from the prophet Isaiah. And here's a direct quote from Isaiah. It's chapter 40 and verse 35. I would mention to you that all of the other gospels, the four gospels, who give us really much more uh, historical uh, facts about John. They talk about his birth. They talk about his ministry. They, talk, they tell you what kind of clothes he wore. They tell you what he ate. Uh, but some of these things are held in common, and this verse is common to all four Gospels. And here it is from Isaiah. Uh, the first verse talks about comfort. It's given as a comfort to a people who will be exiled and living in Babylon, those who will be paying actually for their sins of rebellion and idolatry. He said, I am the voice. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And of course, John is referring to himself not as the word, but the voice of God. He is not the message, but he is the messenger. It is clear from the text that the Baptist leaves no doubt as to the reference of his description. Did he, and these are just thoughts that I had as I was reading, did he name Isaiah because he was afraid that his hearers would be unfamiliar with the source? Or did he reference Isaiah as an endorsement of his claim? What we do know is that he quotes from the scriptures, claiming that he is uh, who he says he is. 
a voice crying in the wilderness. First, the Baptist identifies himself by the nature of his ministry. He is a voice. He is a voice crying. He is a voice proclaiming. I am a voice one crying. Each of the other Gospels writers ascribe this to John. He was a voice. He was a voice. He was a voice. But here in John's Gospel, he is ascribing this to himself. Notice he has already said in the negative what he is not. I am not. The Christ. I am not the prophet. I am not Elijah. But here he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, I suggest to you that the substance of the text, let's see, three. Back up, wrong page. May I suggest that the Baptist was not wandering about in the wilderness trying to figure out who he was. I've heard so many people say, you know, they go on a journey. I'm trying to find out who I am. He knew who he wasn't, and he knew who he was. His identity was defined by his calling. It must be noted that the contrast the apostle makes between the Baptist and the Christ. He was not the light, but a witness to the light. Here he is not the word, but he is one giving voice to the word. John is not the message, as we have said, but he is the messenger. Second, he describes the area or the arena of his ministry. He is a voice crying in the wilderness. His job was to make that which was difficult, you know what a desert, if you can image a desert with the obstacles, and it describes it, valleys and mountains and crooked and, and low places, and high, is to make it plain, to make it even, to make it to remove the obstacles. He's a, he's a voice crying in the wilderness, and the wilderness is a far cry from the Zion city of God. Inhospitable, desolate, and lonesome, the children of Israel had wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land as exiles from Egypt, or, or uh, in their exodus from Egypt. Later, they would make the arduous journey from Babylon, Babylonian exile back to Zion, the city of God. Yet even upon the return, the children of God to the land, they and we are yet waiting for the blessed hope of the second coming of the Messiah King, who will usher his chosen ones home to the new Jerusalem come down. They asked him then, if you're not Elijah, <clears throat> why are you prophesying if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah the prophet? Notice these inquirers did not connect the dots. They hadn't figured out. He's, he is, I think it's in the text, and they should have picked up on it. They seem to have ignored completely the connection between the passage from Isaiah and what he was doing and who he proclaimed that he was. They did not connect his baptizing for sin as the preparing of the way of the Lord. The revealing of the Lord, as we will see. Water, water baptism, by way of interest, was not new to these Jews. In that day, as well as in our own day, uh, there are the Jews practice baptism. And I, I hate to say this, but it's by immersion. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's called a mikvah, and, it, and it's required that it be uh, naturally sourced water. 
uh, my sister-in-law converted to Judaism and she went through this process. So the Jews were not unfamiliar with this. In the past, they had seen this practiced and perhaps they had known Gentiles who had come in. But what's unique about this baptism is it's not for the conversion of Gentiles. But this baptism, water baptism, is a baptism for Jews. Jews who are God's chosen people. Jews who are God's elect. People who are given the promises and the covenants. But, putting all of that aside, they were sinners. And the Savior was coming, and he was preparing them for the coming. This baptism was a, uh, a ritual baptism that pointed to their sin and the need for cleansing, and many received this baptism. Verse 26, <clears throat> John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one, keep in mind, this is his answer to their question. If you're not the Christ, if you're not the, why are you baptizing? And he says, here's his answer. I baptize you with water. He doesn't give the reason. He just simply says, I baptize you with water, but the reason is implied here. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. John is pointing away from himself and pointing to the Christ. It's not about, it, don't get me wrong, it's critical. He was sent by God to do what he did. Uh, he understood. He understood his ministry. He had a miraculous. All of the things that we know about John point to the fact that he was a forerunner. He was a preparer. But John's constant tendency was to point away from his ministry, to point away from his works, and point to Christ. And this is what he does here. Uh, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What is implied, I might ask it as a question, what is implied in that statement? I baptize with water. The implication is that there is another kind of baptism to come. John spends no time connecting the dots for them, but immediately points away from his person and his own actions. <clears throat> Instead of trying to explain his role, he fulfills his role by accomplishing what God has sent him to do. He presents to them in the most poignant terms the vast disparity between the worth of the Christ and his own worth. In the Jewish world, there were those tasks that only a slave was supposed to do. There's in an early rabbinic writing or saying, quote, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosening of his sandal. Perhaps this was one of the most degrading tasks a slave could perform. But you notice here, John was not even elevating himself to the level of a slave. He says, I am not even worthy to unloose his, the straps of his feet. How degrading was it? Uh, when, I was, when we were in Israel, I would, we took field trips, and we got on a bus, and uh, I like to sit in the front. And uh, in the front of the bus, there was, uh, there was a bar. You know, there's a, 
a little shield and there was a bar right behind the driver. And uh, I found myself one day, you know, just sitting back and putting my feet up on the, on the bar in front of me, right behind the driver. At our next stop, uh, our instructor, our teacher, called me aside and he said, do not, <laughs> do not put your feet up to show the bottom of your feet in this culture is an insult. Uh, so I, I learned my lesson. If you remember at the downfall of Saddam, maybe you remember the pictures where they would take off their shoes and they would hold them up at an image or a statue of Saddam. Why? You remember that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. I would assume that he unlatched and took off their sandals. I don't mean to be, well, <laughs> this is the reality. Uh, which foot had you rather wash? One that walked through the chicken pen with sandals on or one that walked through the chicken pen barefooted? You understand what I'm asking there? The sandal accumulated and did at least some protection from the filth that was on the earth. And so that's the degradation. And what John is saying, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandal. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Okay, this was his activity. It was across the Jordan, uh, not in Jerusalem. I, I suggest that this is a historical marker that John brings in because this is not a fairy tale. This took place in a location, a geographical location, and he was doing an activity, a historical event that can be traced. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Son of God that takes away the sin of the world. The next day, this again puts it in not only a space, but it puts it in time. It's separating days. This is a real story, a real narrative of historical events. Behold, when's the last time you spoke to someone and you wanted to tell them something and you said, behold, have you ever done that? In the Hebrew it's hene, behold, it's a, it's a point of exclamation to draw attention. And uh, we don't use it in our culture, but John was saying, behold, uh, as we've mentioned in the preface, uh, John the Apostle says, we beheld his glory. It means more than a glance at. You know, it's not a flip up a picture and, and pull it down, but he's saying, behold, hold it with your eye. It's an invitation to take hold of. This should be our expectation every Sunday when we come together, that we're coming together to behold the Lamb of God, which has taken away the sins of the world. We behold the triune God as he has presented to us, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the witness and the testimony of John the Baptist, the one <clears throat> uh, who was not worthy to unloose the uh, Savior's uh, strap on his... Uh, do you remember there's a... Uh, in another gospel, he says, I must decrease he must increase you also remember what did jesus say about john he says there's never been a greater prophet than john the baptist but uh, the least of you 
in the kingdom are greater than John. So it's not elevating John. Christ was not elevating. But there is a certain privilege that John had as the preparer, the announcer, the proclaimer of the coming Christ. A few years ago, Vivian and I invited a, a woman she had befriended to come to church here. She came with her two young sons. The boys had never been to church, and the woman's experience was limited to her childhood back in Wales. And that was scant at best. This is her own testimony. And as, as Vivian talked to her, it became, she became increasingly aware of just how biblically illiterate she was. That which we've, we've absorbed, that which we've saturated, some of us for many, many, many years, uh, to some people, this is brand new. Uh, it's, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world is where we're going. The Jews should have understood it. But there are people today who, this, behold the Lamb of God. I don't want to assume too little and I don't want to assume too much. Uh, your understanding of the sacrificial system. John has pointed to Isaiah uh, he's talked about the prophet. He's talked about Elijah, or at least made reference to it. And now he's talking about the Levitical requirements of the law. God gave the law. Man couldn't keep it, so he made a provision. And it was a ceremonial, sacrificial services of the tabernacle and the temple. God came, the Lamb came, to take away the sin of the world. That, would be total, that was totally meaningless to this young woman and even more so to her children. It would be much like if I were to say to you, when we were in Israel, uh, our neighbors invited us over on Shabbat for shunt. How many of you know what shunt is? <laughs> we didn't know. Though they tried to explain it to us, it was a meal that they would prepare the day before. It was uh, in one pot, you know about potluck. It had potatoes, and it had beans, and it had lentils, and it had barley, and sometimes meat and potatoes, and then it would have also uh, baked eggs. They'd put it in there, and then they would, they would bake it. And our neighbors told us, this will knock you out. And uh, it did. You, you, you eat that, and you sleep for the rest of the day. It's just such a heavy, heavy meal. My point is, uh, there's things that we're unfamiliar with. The Jews should have been familiar with what John was saying here. He's referencing the thousands of sacrificial lambs through the years <clears throat> uh, of their history. Uh, John was familiar with the scriptures. He would have known Isaiah 53 about the sacrificial lamb. He knew of the slaughter of the paschal lamb slain for a household. He knew of the yearly sacrifice held on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This was a sacrifice for the covering of the sins of the nation, and his hearers would have been familiar with this. But John, in a single statement said, <clears throat> that says that which has not happened before, there would be a lamb that would come and take away, not the sins of a household or deal with the sins of a nation, but deal with the sins of the world. In our Sunday school class this morning, we talked about universalism, that all of these say. But this is not what he's talking about. We read about it in our introduction that in heaven there are those from what? Every kindred, tongue, and tribe represented in uh, those who have been drawn into the kingdom. This represents 
the world, and this is what he's talking about. I have no doubt that many of you are aware of your sin and feel its weight. Sin is a burden that we that we bear. But what we do not need to feel is a sense of guilt, a sense of condemnation that makes it so weighty. That is one reason that we often <clears throat> that we often try to find comfort and solace in the fact that we're not alone. What I mean by this, you've heard the statement, nobody's perfect, right? That's a statement on the one hand to excuse what I've just done. And on the other hand, it includes me with everybody else. And there's a kind of a comfort, a kind of a numbing or a dumbing down or a, a common denominator of sin. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to take away the sin of the world. Uh, the blood of goats and bulls covered from the sight of God uh, uh, the sins of the people. But Jesus came to take away the sins. Therefore, we can say with Paul, who said on the one hand, O wretched man that I am, <clears throat> but then turns right around and says, There is therefore now no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, and this is what we're talking, has set you free, and mark this, in Christ from the law of sin and death. It is our faith in Christ which appropriates this force. I'm going to close with a hymn that we used to sing that deals with this. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain, but... Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine, while like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burdens thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree and know her guilt was there. Believing, we rejoice to see the curse removed. We bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. John came with a purpose. He came with a mission. And if the Lord wills, we'll see the response. You, you, know, you know, looking ahead, you know what happened when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of his world? Some of his disciples left him and followed Jesus. And that's, that's our purpose this morning, to look upon, to behold, and to follow Jesus. If you would, take your hymn books and turn with me now to...